You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Adults, when we try to learn something, we're just not very good at being beginners. We've sort of forgotten how to be new at something in many cases. So we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to get good immediately, which often just is not going to happen. That's Tom Vanderbilt explaining why adults should learn for the fun of it and that it's okay to be a dilettante instead of an expert. Tom's the author of Beginners, The Joy and Transformative Power of Lifelong Learning. And he talks to me, Charmaine Chan, about taking starter steps in midlife in everything from surfing to singing to swimming, cycling, drawing and playing chess. From New York, Tom explains why he went back to being a rookie. I mean, it, it was, you know, a sort of an accidental thing, as as they often are, but just really being in the position of, of let's say, being a, a parent and thrust into the role of both learner, learning how to be a parent, and teacher, having to teach your child all of these things that they don't know how to do and that sometimes you do know how to do. I was suddenly found myself immersed in this world of learning that I hadn't really been in since I myself was a child. And I, I think, you know, like many people, I had gotten just obsessed with with work and, and career. One thing that came clear to me as I was escorting my daughter to all of these classes, you know, being a being a somewhat, let's say, tiger father, as, as the word goes, I was, you know, a, a interested in her learning different things and not necessarily becoming great at them, but learning a lot of things. I, I suddenly realized that I myself had let the learning slide and that I was sort of doing many of the same things I had been doing for a long time. And it just struck me that I was not being a particularly good model of why we should continue learning or why we should learn broadly and why we should learn simply for the fun of it and not not to necessarily become great. I counted seven new skills that you acquired in the process of writing the book or for this book, and you didn't seem to fail miserably at anything. Was that just luck or did you choose wisely? Maybe a bit of both, but there were there were things I did take, for example, a welding course um, over the course of several weekends. And I, I did put together this three-dimensional metal cube, you know, successfully, but was it a work of welding art? No. I, you know, I felt like I was not a good welder. But I, I think this is one of the lessons, you know, from the book, but just and it's a bit of a cliche, but just with enough time and, and perseverance, you know, whatever hurdles you're facing can be overcome. And I, I do think we get hung up on the idea of, of innate talent a bit too much. And, and really that when you look at actual things that can be measured in acquisition of skill. So, so for example, the, the skill of singing, I had this little app on my phone called Pitch Perfect into which you can basically sing scales and the like, and it will give you a score of zero to 100. And in the beginning, I was really in the fifties. I mean, this is, <laughs> this is not good, but as I just kept at it, you know, my, my musculature and my, my vocal apparatus were adapting. And I was learning how to listen a little bit better. And so then I, I just, I progressed and eventually I was, you know, sometimes hitting 100 perfect, you know, uh, reproduction of, of the scales. Uh, it doesn't always work, but so, yeah, I, I think there's just a lesson there that I, if I had thought I had some innate singing talent before I went into this, I, number one, I didn't, but you know, that idea might have might have actually stopped me from moving forward because I thought, well, I, I can't do that. But in the end, I could. Because of your book, I discovered the Smule app, very strange word, S-M-U-L-E, which is great if you want to sing duets with strangers. And in that part of the book, 
you talk about the Alexander technique of unlearning. What is that unlearning all about? And by the way, I couldn't find you on Smule. Right. And well, my uh, name on Smule is adult beginner, all one word. So I would be happy to sing with you or any of your listeners. And uh, I mean, the Alexander technique, it comes from from an actor who was who was trying to do his Shakespearean recitations and, and was finding himself, his voice was getting strained. And he had let a lot of bad habits creep into his his oratory, his recitations, and he was becoming strained. And I think, you know, a lot of the things we do in speaking, because, you know, speaking works well for us day to day. We don't think about how we speak. We don't try to get necessarily better at speaking. So, you know, a lot of us might use a little more energy than we need to, might speak with a what's called a vocal fry, might have a lot of nasality. I mean, I do not love the sound of my own voice like a lot of people, but so in, in trying to do something like singing, which is a bit more athletic, you know, I, I had to sort of try to undo some of these habits. So, so a lot of it was, you know, sort of breaking down these processes and, and number one, getting my, my body in, uh, into a more relaxed state, not coming into a singing lesson, carrying a lot of the everyday tension that we have in our lives, um, trying to let your, you know, your, my throat relax, my tongue relax. It sounds strange, but the tongue really gets in the way of, of a lot of good singing and the tongue can carry tension, you know, uh, and there were other things, you know, trying to approach high notes, I, I would get psychologically quite stressed. And my teacher gave me a little trick, which, which actually helped with this kind of unlearning process, I think, which was to, as approaching the high note, actually bend my knees rather than, because my whole body had been trying to strain upwards to, to sort of reinforce this idea that, oh, I'm trying to go high the key of often breaking bad habits is to, to change the habit. It was a trigger to do something differently. And I, I think often when we try to break a bad habit, we, we end up just thinking even more about that bad habit and reinforcing it. That was a way to just get me to think differently. And it generally worked. And why are we so scared of singing in public? I certainly am. It is just something that, you know, number one, it's a very emotionally resonant sort of practice singing that to do it earnestly and not in a joking manner, you know, can seem like an emotionally vulnerable moment. So you have to feel comfortable to do that. I think also there's a perf the performative aspect because basically over the last hundred or so years, when we shifted to the availability of, of mass broadcast media, where, where singing used to be a practice that everyone engaged in, in, in their homes, people, people produced their own music. They didn't really consume it. Uh, once you could, you know, sort of buy records and listen to things on the radio, it, it changed, I think, the notion of a little bit of what singing was. And, you know, why would you want to sing in a mediocre fashion in your own home when you could listen to Caruso or Placido Domingo or whoever? Uh, so, but, you know, the, the, the sad part about that is that, you know, we, we sort of emphasize greatness and lose a lot of what is just the, the beneficial and enjoyable practice of social singing or, or, or even singing to oneself. But here's the thing. A lot of us do do this. Of course, we, we do it in private. I mean, clearly the impulse is there. My point is that, you know, I think we really you don't need that much effort or, or experience or practice to get better. It's just because we've put such a high cost on it, a lot of us don't even get to that point. What I got from your book was that perfect pitch can be learned and that very, very few of us are tone deaf. Often it's just the excuse that, that people give. 
you know, they, they are, they, they think they're tone deaf. They're not producing the right tones, but it's again, because they just haven't worked on it very much. Uh, you know, you wouldn't hand someone a pencil who hasn't drawn in 40 years or, or perhaps never and, and expect them to be able to draw something or hand them a tennis racket and be able to just produce a perfect serve. Some people are good singers and some people are not, but it, it takes a little bit of uh, work and, and just effort. And, and luckily that work and effort is enjoyable. I found that even practicing scales felt very kind of meditative and contemplative and, and, and simply made me feel good. You explain why children are better than adults at learning some things. And it's not just about the fact that the brain atrophies with age, is it? What else is involved? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of factors that are both lifestyle-oriented and cognitively-oriented that explains this sometimes difference between kids and, and adults. I mean, you know, kids' brains are just optimized for learning new things. They have these many, many synapses. These neural connections are being formed and they're sort of in search of new information, and they sort of greedily absorb that new information. I'm speaking metaphorically really here, but uh, and, and one of the positive things for them is that they don't have a lot of other stuff that's already in their brain sort of getting in the way. And I use the metaphor of, of an old computer. My brain is you know five decades old. I have a lot of memories, thoughts, skills that I've learned, you know, and anytime I try to add something new to that, I'm overlaying it on top of all that old stuff. There's also sorts of other things, you know, kids learn in such a, a wonderful, low pressure environment that, you know, and they have a supportive network of, of you know, parents and, and family and adults, when we try to learn something, we're just not very good at being beginners. We've sort of forgotten how to be new at something in many cases. So we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to get good immediately, which often just is not going to happen. If you look at sort of the history of many of the famous chess grandmasters as, as youth, they were in their rooms, you know, by themselves playing games by themselves, reading lots of chess books. <laughs> I, I don't have very much time for any of that. So I think, you know, we, we can't just say, you know, adults are, their brains are, are, you know, atrophying, a lot of other factors, but kids and adults definitely do not learn in the same way. As journalists, I guess most of us are dilettantes. It is pejorative. But did a background in journalism give you sufficient armour when you started trying your hand at these skills? I mean, thinking, oh, this is just for a story, although this time you are the story. Yeah, that's a great point and a, and a good distinction, I think. And, and that the thought was this was not going to be a one-time thing. You know, if I were doing a story about I don't know, target shooting. And I went to a, a, a range and, and shot a rifle for an hour with, with a pro. No one would expect anything. It would just be fun. I would have a laugh. I would, I would be just doing it for the day. But with this project, I was going to be returning to these things day after day. There was a bit more pressure. I was just talking about pressure and how adults put pressure on themselves. I mean, I was, even though I was trying to adopt the spirit of fun and growth and all those things, you know, I'm still... I'm still human. I, you know, I feel a certain responsibility for what I'm doing and, and just a, my pride wants me to try to get better. So yeah. And, and your idea that, that I was the story, I mean, this is um, probably a good point when I was, when I was with my vocal teacher, for example, I was interviewing her, but really the focus was on me and my hopefully improving. So that did sort of up the stakes a bit. Your choice of skills to acquire made a lot of sense, chess, drawing, surfing, but you didn't try to learn a new language. And I was wondering why. I mean, I thought that would have been an obvious one for those of us who are middle-aged. Doesn't language acquisition rearrange your brain? 
anything new that we learn rearranges your brain. So, you know, language doesn't doesn't necessarily have a primacy there. But but it's a it's a good question. And I I, I mean, number one, there were already some books out there I noticed that were about people tackling a language. Uh, the second thing is that I felt like language to really get to where I would I would think I'd actually learn something would be more involved than I had time for, given the other pursuits I was also doing. I wanted to ask you also about your description of your daughter learning chess. You said that for her, it was like learning a first language, but for you, it was like learning a second language. What did you mean by that? Well, just that, you know, children learn languages by, by talking, by immersing themselves in, in the womb. We are already hearing voices and trying to, you know, figure out patterns from those voices. So, you know, children aren't obsessed with grammar rules. They learn by listening, mimicking, experimenting, babbling. Uh, adults, if I were to try and go learn a new language like German, you know, the first thing I want to know is, you know, the rules of grammar and and then, you know, vocabulary and things like that. But I would, I would approach it in a very methodical way that might not actually be the most efficient where, you know, if I could just immerse myself in, and listen and and try out the language in a very, you know, sort of the way kids do in a very, with, with poor pronunciation and, and babbling, but it's hard for adults to, to learn that way. We want to be good from the beginning and we're, we're embarrassed when we're not. So and that's another edge that, that children have in learning is just that lack of self-consciousness, being able to just plunge into something. And just one other point on that is that, you know, when, when we're young, when we are the, the youngest children, we we really want to learn to speak. We want to communicate with the people around us. This is this is you know a life skill that is seems very important to us. I thought it was very brave of you to tackle surfing. I'm from Australia, and I always thought maybe one day, but I think that day has passed. Basically, I will not deal with tribalism at a beach or sexism or ageism. What did you feel as a grommet? Surfing is one of those things, you know, if I had only grown up in Australia or Hawaii, I would I would just know how to do it. But it sounds like that's that's not enough. And as a male, of course, I didn't have to deal with the sexism issue, but those the ageism and let's say abilityism were two things that I, I felt very acutely at going to the surf break. And you know, of course, the one good thing about being a beginner is that I, I was happy with the smallest waves. So I would go to the beach on a day that anyone who was really good probably wouldn't be interested in those waves. So there's a bit of self-selection that went on there. But even so, there's always a hierarchy. To this day, it's, it can be difficult for me to, you know, sort of paddle right into the, the, the pocket of where the good waves are, joining the lineup, as, as they call it, and just having the, the self-assuredness that I belong there. What did you learn from surfing? I mean, one practical point you made was that beginners tend to look at their feet, which is a no-no um, for surfing and for cycling. I mean, surfing is a very humbling practice and, and just being in the, the ocean is a very dynamic experience. So that, that was one thing is that, you know, learning to adapt to different conditions. I mean, you see a wave coming, you lie down on your board, you start a very slow paddle but you have to keep turning around to look at that wave because it keeps changing. And it, the wave may simply die out. It may suddenly get larger than you thought, which could present a certain amount of danger. So it, it really just taught you know an immense amount of flexibility and adaptability. And, and also just that sense of being humbled. Sometimes you would you would wipe out and there was really no explanation. You, there's just, just a randomness that, that's 
out there. But um, you know, when we're learning a new skill, whether it's it's driving a car or riding a bike, you know, there's a whole process that we go through where beginners are just obviously incredibly nervous, but they're they're always looking, you know, at themselves. We're very close to themselves. So drivers are, are sometimes looking literally at their hands on the wheel or the very front of the car. Uh, when, when you really want to be looking well down the road to anticipate things that might go wrong, so it's just it's just learning to become comfortable with our body in motion. That often mm-hmm. has little to do with paying attention to that body. This is the, the key secret about skill learning: is that is not thinking about it. You know, if I were to ask you to go out and walk in the street and really think about your walking technique, you would probably mess it up because we're, we've made that automatic behavior. The reason it works so well is because we don't we don't think about it. If we started to think about it, we would probably take weird stutter steps. Let's talk about drawing. Now, you pointed out that that scores really highly in Google searches. Why do you think that's the case? Why do we want to be able to draw? The artistic impulse is obviously strong in, in humans. And it's just, for me, it was a sense, not just of representing reality or trying to represent reality in, in a two-dimensional medium, but but really just the tactility of, of the whole thing. As someone who works on a computer all day, I just really found just holding a pencil, I mean, sharpening a pencil in the way that artists do with, with an exacto knife, you know, not, not your regular pencil sharpener. Uh, the, these interesting kneaded erasers that were these wonderful blobby sorts of things that you, you know, just all these, all these tools and, and the whole practice I found very rewarding. And, and of course, the act of actually doing the drawing, trying to represent that reality is such a, a cognitively demanding exercise that, you know, I, w- I would find that hours would pass and I, I would lose track of time. It just felt like a very cleansing, restorative process to me in, in an age when I'm, like many people, I'm constantly distracted by incoming text messages and, and things like that. Did you say something about how drawing actually exercises your brain insofar as it works your memory? Uh, yeah, I mean, they have done some studies on this. I mean, because, you know, in, in some ways, what you're drawing is what the is the the memory sometimes very quickly of what you've just seen. So there there is sort of a process there of, of going back and forth between the things. But yeah, I'm I'm sure drawing works many parts of, of the brain, including the visual, you know, then that kind of idea of hand-eye coordination. Of course, I I generally am not drawing things from memory. I'm I'm looking at something. Uh, that that's a whole other skill set I haven't acquired yet. And what about chess? You spend a lot of time writing about chess, which has seen a huge surge in popularity because of the Queen's Gambit. What did you gain from learning how to play the game? Chess rewards study. It, you know, I would, I would love to say that you could just plunge in and, and become really good. But I was, I was listening to uh, someone who has a PhD who also happens to be a chess grandmaster. And he was noting that the chess grandmaster designation was a much harder thing for him to acquire than the PhD. It, it is a very complex game that, you know, to play at the highest levels just needs an insane amount of, of study and practice. And the sheer amount of work that goes into this is, is staggering. And the drills that people work on, I mean, we're talking about blind, like being able to play chess literally blindfolded because you, you've so memorized the those 64 squares. I am nowhere near any of that. I mostly play for fun, but once in a while I'll, I'll sort of do a, a, you know, sort of tactics puzzles and, and training uh, or, or look at old, look at classic games. But, you know, I try to, it's for me, not a hundred percent about just merely getting better and beating people. I, I'm just 
happy to be playing, you know, as my daughter has continued to play, it is again, just a, a shared experience that we have. Whereas like many parents of chess kids that I saw, they, they didn't really understand the game. So they could, you know, sort of try to give their kid advice or general motivational advice, but they were really speaking different languages. And I, I just feel like that's a, a nice thing that, that I was able to do. And then of course, when the Queen's Gambit movie came out, as you're, as you're referring to, that was just a nice thing to be ahead of a little bit and that I actually could understand the chess references. But that movie has, of course, sparked a huge increase in the number of people wanting to learn chess, mm. which leads to a larger point about the last year and the pandemic. This really is a huge time for taking on the sorts of new things that that I had taken on you know, several years before the pandemic. And I think it's just, it really is for me, a kind of a rewarding, positive thing to see come out of this. Time, time is important, but also I, th- I think it was the disruption that really presented people with this you know, talking about, you know, disrupting their old ways of living or their old habits. It gave them a, a fresh window on which to suddenly say, oh, I'd really like to do that. Because I think often people do have time, including myself, that they could potentially learn something, but we use it as another excuse that I don't have time. But, you know, yet if you watch The Queen's Gambit, if you spent that whole time watching it, you could use that same amount of time and pretty much learn how to also play chess. So, there is time you can squeeze in here and there. <laughs> Do you think the book would have been very different had you written it in your thirties? That's a good question. Uh, I'm not sure what, I mean, it de- definitely would have been different not having a, a child. Uh, that, you know, I might've been a little bit more physically up for doing some other things, but uh, it's a good point. I mean, yeah, the, the f- one's 40, one, one, let's say one's fifties. I mean, there's different stages of life that, that, Often people turn to things like hobbies more, obviously, because they have more time. I'm glad I started doing some of these things now because I really think these are, in some cases, lifetime pursuits that I can, you know, build upon and and continue once I do, you know, sort of pack it in and, and stop writing or whatever it is. But um, rather than suddenly finding myself retired and having to, to scramble to pick up a, a lot of new hobbies, but really any time of, of life, there, there's a moment, there's an entry point for learning and it's really never too early and it's, it's really never too late. Were there any particular books that helped in the writing of beginners? Do you have any examples of books that you turned to that inspired you for whatever reason? There are certain books like uh, The Inner Game of Tennis, which is in theory about tennis, but is one of those books that's really about so much more just, uh, you know, about how to acquire a skill. And it really has, you know, that, that little bit more of that feeling of of Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance, uh, how that's not necessarily about motorcycle maintenance. Uh, So a book like, let's say, and this unfortunately came out right as my book was at the publishers. So it didn't influence the writing so much, but uh, range by, David Epstein, which is about sort of an an anti-specialization argument, noting that, you know, a lot of people who have become quite successful in certain fields like tennis weren't doing only tennis when they were six. Like they they, they had a very broad early base of learning. But the the whole book is, you know, about resisting this this temptation towards specialization and the need to become great at only one thing and that, that you have to start early at that one thing. And that in a field like science, 
there's a benefit to looking outside of what you're actually working on and potentially picking up a hobby like like singing or creative arts, how that can actually feed back into your career and give you perhaps you know the spark of, of a new insight. A lot of the books that, that probably influenced me are referenced uh, in the book. But the last thing I'll say there is that there's a, there's a, I guess, a bit of a school of books here of, of people plunging in and trying to get really good at something like, like Stefan Fatsis's book, uh, Word Freak, which was about his desire to become a Scrabble champion. Or Maria Konnikova has a new book about becoming a, a poker, a professional poker player. Uh, yeah, I wish I were <laughs> good enough at chess to become professional. Those books also interest me and are a certain inspiration, but the difference being that those people became very good at one thing. I was trying to become just a little bit good at many things. And in the writing of the book, can you sort of take us through how you planned it? Admittedly, this is one of my weaknesses in in writing is organization. I, I you know, am envious of people that have very elaborate sort of architectures uh, for their book, but I kind of went mostly in a very linear fashion of just chapter by chapter talking about each skill I was trying to learn. I mean, for example, in the beginning, I thought, well, maybe I should talk about them all at once and then get a little bit better at them and then talk about them all at once again and, and sort of have a more interwoven structure. But that that just seemed very difficult to me. So, I, so it's basically, you know, each skill is one of these chapters. But then I also tried to tease out what some of the main points were about that skill beyond the skill itself. Some, some of the, the metaphorical, you know, sort of takeaways, if you will. Have you um, tackled any new skills since writing the book? I've been doing a lot of uh, indoor climbing recently at, at an indoor climbing gym. And also uh, my daughter started doing mountain biking with a local club. So I have purchased the first mountain bike in my life which is a different skill. I mean, riding on the road is one thing. Riding on a on a hill with roots and rocks that are trying to knock you over is another thing. So undoubtedly many other things that I, I would like to learn. The only, only boundaries are really, you know, sort of time and, and money. That's Tom Vanderbilt, author of Beginners, The Joy and Transformative Power of Lifelong Learning. I'm off to learn how to do the Frisbee flop which is in the book. Bye. For more podcasts from the South China Morning Post, head to scmp.com, where you can hear more about technology, trade, culture, and society.